So when we were at Trinity, when I was uh, studying in seminary at Trinity International, um, there's a lot of international students at the university. And one of the things that Anna and I noticed that was interesting and stuck out to us is a lot of the students from other cultures, when they heard your name or when they encountered new names and new folks, they often wanted to know what your name meant. So it was a common thing for them to ask American students what their names meant. But if you've grown up in America, you know, uh, at least in the predominant culture, you know that we often don't put a whole lot of stock in the meaning of our names. Maybe at some point we look it up and we find out what it means on some website, but that maybe was, you know, it probably wasn't the, the reason our parents gave us the name. We typically name people things because uh, maybe, maybe a family member is about as meaningful as we get, or um, we just like the way it sounds. But oftentimes, my friends from international countries, they would have meanings that their parents gave them that were quite significant, and they would have theological meaning or something like that. And it stuck with Anne and I. And so Anne and I, when we, have, we had kids, as you know, we named our children Jubilee, Evangeline, and Abel, and wanted to give them names that had like significant ties to, to the Bible and Christ, Christianity and things like that. And it, it's as you look around at Crossway, that's not terribly abnormal here. There's a lot of you who have done similar things with Bible names and things like that. But that's not, that's not a normal thing we do in, in our culture as much. But when we come to the Bible, we find that the Bible, uh, the, the, the culture of, of the Bible, we find oftentimes gives names, sees names with a lot of significance. Um, so in the book of Revelation, for example, the, the, the word name will be used 37 times, and it's, it's a word that carries a lot of significance even in the book of Revelation, the use of this word name. But think about what you know from the Bible itself. Uh, names are oftentimes meant as, oftentimes seen as signifying the essence of someone. So in the Garden of Eden, Adam is tasked. Adam is one who is to exercise dominion and authority over creation. One of the ways he does that exercising of dominion is by naming the animals. The act of naming the animals and giving them their name was seen as an act of authority to kind of signify what they are. Or we see in the Bible, oftentimes names are, uh, they're seen as carrying meaning. So Jacob, in the, the name Jacob meaning deceiver. And he was one who was often very deceptive. Or Jesus, popularly, the one who will save his people from their sins. God will save. Jesus, God will save. We have name changes in the Bible, where Jacob goes from Jacob to Israel, the deceiver to the one who strives with God, significantly after having strove, is it strove or striven? Having uh, wrestled with God, right? Or we get the name uh, Simon. Jesus gives him his additional name, Peter, Rock. The one on whom the church will, he will have a foundational role, a rock-like role in the early church. Or we think of Naomi, a name that means pleasant. When she loses everything, she says, call me Mara, which means bitter, because she says the Lord has dealt bitterly with me. And then God's name himself, as he says, I rescue you for my name, and God invokes his own name. The idea is that a name can be invoked to sort of bring with it all of what it reflects as that person's Character and maybe the most, maybe the most, uh, the similar we get into this in our culture is when we want our name to have a, a legacy, right? Okay, but it's a little bit foreign for us. But as we come to the revelation, I want us to keep that in mind that we see in this passage the use of the word name repeated throughout. So look at 
uh, our passage today with me. Revelation 3, 1 through 6. In the second half of verse 1, he says, I know your works that you have, and this is how the ESV translates it, you have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. If you have a different translation, you may notice that it says you have the name that you are alive. It's literally the word name. You have a name that you are alive. And this is significant because later in the passage, if you look at verse 4, he says, yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who haven't soiled their garments. There are some faithful names, people in other words, but he calls them names in Sardis. Or in verse 5, when we get to the promise section, he says, I will never blot out his name from the book of life. In fact, I will confess his name before my father. And so we get this contrast of what Sardis's name was, this reputation they had, their own self-assessment of their name, versus the name that ultimately matters, the name before God, the name that will be in God's book, the name that will be confessed before God. And with this contrast of names, of, of self-assessment, their, their name as in terms of their own assessment versus the name in as much as God assesses it, we also get this contrast of, of, of how they are seen before the Father. And so we see in, in uh, verse 2, at the end of verse 2, it says that I have found your works incomplete. I have not found your works complete in the sight of God. And that's literally before God. Before God with your name that is supposedly alive but is actually dead, your works are incomplete before God. And then you notice at the end of the section again, he says, I will confess his name, what? Before my Father and before his angels. And so I want you to see that contrast that I think sets us up for this section here. And the question that this passage then asks us is what is the name that ultimately matters? What is the name that ultimately matters? Is it our assessment of ourselves, like Sardis had, a name of being alive, but before God actually incomplete? Or is the name that ultimately matters the one of being enrolled as Christ's very own, confessed before God? So let's begin today by looking specifically at the condition of the church in Sardis. We'll look first at their sin their sinful condition, what they have gotten themselves caught up in. Then we will look at the warning Christ gives to them, and then finally the promise Christ gives to them. So let's look first at the sin. He begins this section in the second half of verse 1. You'll notice he says, I know your works. And if you've been paying attention, in each of the seven messages, every single one of them, after giving a description of himself, Christ giving a description of himself and addressing the church, he always includes this language of, I know. I am aware of your situation, church. But normally, he says something positive to the church. Even as to the churches, he will eventually rebuke them. He typically has something positive to say about them. I know this about you. I know you're going through hardship, or I know you have love. Or I know your, your fervency and your good deeds, but this I have against you. But notice what he does here. We're, we're, we're expecting that, in other words. We're expecting him to say, I know, and say something positive about them. But what do we get? I know your works. You have the reputation for being alive, but you're dead. 
he doesn't give them a commendation to, to Sardis. Sardis, in contrast to the other churches, doesn't get anything positive said to them as a church. This is a very stark message that we're entering into today. And the first thing I want you to notice is that we might say they could be described as having a facade. I think the first description we can get of, of their sinful condition is that of having a facade. They have the name of being alive, but they are actually dead. And this is, a, this is a facade that they have before others, but as we saw, in the sight of God, he sees right through it. In other words, I think, I think the idea here is that on the surface level, on the outward level, they look like they have it all together. In terms of their forms, you know, as we think of a church that today, what this might look like, it would be a church that has all the programs, all the glitz and, gra- and, and glamour. Everything is highly produced. It looks really good on the outside. High attendance, really active small groups, really powerful classes, etc. Everything looks like it is all together. Before others, they have this reputation. It looks good, but at the core of it, it is, in fact, lifeless. There's a contradiction, in other words, between their reputation and the reality. There's a disconnect between their reputation and the reality. I I think of it, the image that comes to mind is like a corpse. If we were to have a a corpse before us in a coffin. Now, before someone has their funeral, what do they do to the corpse? They dress it up in the nicest clothes. They put makeup on it. They make the corpse look really good. On the surface level, that corpse can look Good, as good as they can make it, right? But on the inside, it's dead. That's the description that he gives of them here, that on the surface, you have the reputation of of looking like you have life. Rosy cheeks. But it's just a corpse. It's highly produced. And so the the question that we could ask is if a visitor was to come in here, they could, they could, it could look like we have it all together, just on the surface level. But actually at the core of our church, do we have the vitality? My mind also goes to 1 Corinthians 3, where Paul talks about how what ultimately matters for the foundation of the church. He contrasts the building up of the church with things like wood, hay, and stubble, things that will be consumed, things that, that are ultimately vanity. The only foundation, there's only one foundation in the church, and that is Jesus Christ himself. And if you don't build on the actual foundation of Jesus, everything you do in the church is pointless. You can have a really active church. We can be doing a whole lot of stuff. But that doesn't mean it's actually worthwhile if it's not based on Christ. And this seems to be the name that Sardis cares about. When they think about what name actually matters... They're satisfied, it would seem, with this name, the fact that on the surface they have it all together. He also describes them as asleep. He says that they are dead and asleep, or he says that they're about to die. And so my mind kind of combining these things kind of pictures the idea of a coma. We think of someone in a coma, it's like, a lot of times it's like they can be oftentimes at the very cusp of death. And they're in this sleep-like state. They're about to die. And so this church is in a coma, we might think. 
We get that call to them twice in verse 2 to wake up. And then in verse 3, if you don't wake up, the idea is that they're unalert. They're not alert to what's happening. So if on the one hand we could describe their state as a facade, I think the other language we could use to describe their state is that they are complacent in it. They have a facade, but they're also complacent in it. Because one of the things you'll notice is that there is no, where in the other messages to the churches, there's typically some indication that, you know, there's some sort of outside force that's pressuring in on them, like there's some uh, persecution that's happening or some pressure to conform to idolatry, or there's like an internal threat of some sort of false teacher, like a Balaam teaching or the Nicolaitans or Jezebel. But nothing is said like that in this church. There's no threat that's coming at them. The threat is simply their own complacency. He says you got to wake up, guys. They're unalert. They're sleeping. They're slumbering. And this makes the situation all, more, all the more dangerous because not only are they deluded about their state, but they're also complacent about it. Thirdly, what this looks like Practically, as we might say, as he says, um, he said that their works are incomplete in verse 2. Practically spe- speaking, what this deadness and this, this slumbering looks like is that their works are incomplete. I like how one translation puts it. It says, your works are not completely, you are not completely obeying God. You are not completely obeying God. As, as N.T. Wright says on this verse, he says, This is a way of saying that their Christian way of life leaves a lot to be desired. But that's not the sort of thing the Christian faith is, he continues. It's all or nothing. Either Jesus really is Lord, rightly asking for our absolute allegiance, or he is a sham and should be rejected outright. It simply won't do to bumble on. All the activities, all the show, the reputation of being alive. But your works are not complete. You're not completely obeying God. It, it's, in other words, we might describe this as nominalism. Christian in name only. Rather than a full... So you, you say you're a Christian. You, you're, you're, you're kind of half-heartedly committed. Just enough to kind of put your foot in the doorway. But there's not a full-throated devo- full-throttled devotion to God. There isn't a radical commitment to Christ. And fourthly, he describes it this way, with this imagery of soiled garments. So we have a facade, we have complacency, we have nominalism, and here with soiled garments we have this imagery of compromise. And so uh, growing up, paintball was, was pretty popular when I was, in te- when I was a teenager. And one of the things with paintball, in contrast to something like airsoft, so airsoft is like this game where you shoot little beads at each other, if you get hit, no one really knows. Hypothetically, you could cheat, right? With paintball, what happens is if you get hit with a paintball, the paint explodes on you, and you got paint on you, right? And this is sort of the imagery. It exposes that you got hit. This is sort of the imagery that he's bringing up here. Imagine all of us had these symbolic white shirts on and we left from the church we go on our merry way throughout the week and we come back here and we could see the stains of compromise on each other's shirts 
where we rubbed up against the world and sort of started to adapt to its ideology and its, its, its values, the things that it loves, the activities that it engages in. That's sort of the idea here. We'd be able to see each other and be like, oh man, your shirt is pretty dirty. Oh, mine's pretty dirty too. He says here that there are folks in verse 4 who have not soiled their garments. They haven't soiled their garments. And later in the book we see in Revelation 19.8, we will see that this is referred to the white garments are, that the believers wear are the, are the, represent their righteous deeds. So, so this idea of clothing is meant to symbolize one's moral integrity. Whether their garments are white and pure, or whether they are compromised and stained by society. And so likely they are, they are, as we saw, they have a facade of being alive. They kind of on the outside have it all together. They are, they are slumbering, they're complacent, they're nominal, they're half-hearted, and they're also compromised. In their half-hearted commitment to Christ, they're compromising on various levels. So we can summarize it this way. A complacent, half-hearted, nominal Christianity concerned more with putting on the appearance of having everything together than actually following Christ. One commentator describes Sardis as, quote, the perfect model of inoffensive Christianity. The perfect model of inoffensive Christianity. And so we get to the warning. He gives them the warning. And the warning we have is that you guys got to wake up because, as we see in verse 3, at the end of verse 3, I will come like a thief. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Now, this is common language, this idea of a thief. Um, we see this in all of that discourse in, in the Gospels where Jesus is talking about when he will come again. And he oftentimes describes his return as coming like a thief. And Paul picks this up, and later parts of the New Testament come up. This is a common theme. And oftentimes this language of wake up goes with the thief imagery. you gotta, you got to wake up. you got to be alert. you got to be living with preparedness because Christ's coming will come like a thief. Now, that's a common image, image so I think sometimes we can gloss over it and not let it hit us. I want you to think. Imagine you are sleeping at night, two in the morning, and all of a sudden you hear a big crash or a big bang, and someone breaks into your house. That would be terrifying. I would be, I would be terrified. Unexpected. You're, not, you're asleep. You're not aware. You're not paying attention. And they break in. That's the imagery here. Christ's coming will come, will come sudden. It will be unexpected to people. And so there is a call then to what? To wake up. To be prepared. Church, be alert. Don't be slumbering. It's this image of, of unexpected, of catching us off guard. That, hey guys, if you don't wake up, I'm going to come like a thief to you. It's going to catch you off guard. In other words, this church has lost consciousness of Christ's coming and their need to be prepared. Their need to, to constantly live in light of the fact that Christ is coming at any time. 
We think about the rest of the book. Remember, each of these letters to the seven churches serves as something of an introduction to the whole book, right? Each church kind of gets their own unique introduction to the whole book. And what is the whole book about? The whole book was about Christ intervening in history. The bookends of the entire book is about, Behold, I am coming soon. In fact, in chapter 16, verse 5, I'll just turn there really fast. In 16, verse 5, I believe this is in the, in the bold judgments. Yeah, in the bold judgments. Or 16, verse 15, sorry. In the midst of these bold judgments where God is intervening in history and issuing these judgments, and the sixth judgment is particularly, which symbolizes right before the coming of Christ, the final judgment. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake. You're awake. Keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. So there we get all three images of of the garments, of being awake, of the thief coming, all in the context of the book. And so this this is an introductory message for them. Hey guys, you need to wake up as you get ready to actually heed the message of this book. You need to be prepared for its realities. And the thing about Sardis, what's interesting, is that Sardis was known for being a city that was spoken of as basically impenetrable. It was, you were not able to overcome it. So so the ancient city of Sardis was, um, it was actually built on these cliffs. So on three sides of the city were these uh, 1,500 foot cliffs, straight up. You can actually Google ancient Sardis and you'll see this. So massive cliffs, and the city is built on the top. And so they, they feel safe. Who can come and conquer them? And so it was often it was in common language that people would speak of them as basically an unconquerable city. I, I think of, if, you, if you're familiar with Lord of the Rings, you have like these, oftentimes these amazing scenes of cities that were built on like the sides of mountains. I think Lucas can correct me, but like Minas Tirith, I think is one of them, where it's like built on the side of a mountain. And you just think, wow, that would be crazy to have a, a city built in it with such like, geographical uh, guards around it. That's kind of how I think of Sardis. Who can conquer Sardis? And yet twice in their history, they actually were sacked because they were complacent. Because they were inattentive, they were, they were careless, they assumed like no one can attack us. And so two times someone mounted an attack where they, they scaled the walls and, and because essentially they would have been able to defend it, but because they were so confident in their, uh, their, that they weren't susceptible to attack that they actually were overcome. And so when Jesus says, like, I'm going to come to you like a thief in the night, most likely, these, the, the, these Christians in Sardis would have had that in the background to be like, yeah, we know what that's like. We know what it's like to be attacked when you're not expecting it. And so what does he say? He says, you need to wake up. You need to strengthen what remains. The old language that we might use for this would be to quicken, to revivify, to snap out of it. And practically speaking, what we see in verse 3 is what this looks like is is this idea of remembering. You need to remember. Remember what you received, what you heard, what you've been taught. Recall the gospel. Recall the tradition from the apostles that that you have heard that we have for us in Scripture. Keep it. Repent. And this is what it would mean for them to conquer here in verse 6. To recall and return to what they were taught. 
And so there we have their sin, then we have the warning. Thirdly, let's look at the promise. The promise that is held out to them to motivate them to conquer in this way. The first promise, we get three promises. Look at verse 4 and 5 with me. He says, Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments. So there are a faithful few here. They will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. And the one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments. So if we turn to Revelation 19, all of these promises, as we've noticed, all these promises in these messages to the seven churches find their fulfillment at the end of the book. As, we've, as we go through the tribulation, as we conquer and we stay faithful to Christ, we come out on the other side receiving the promises that we were told at the beginning of the book. And in chapter 19, we get the marriage supper of the Lamb, this, this, this vision of the consummate relationship between God and his people, the Lamb and the Bride. And in verse 6, chapter 19, verse 6, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. So here we get this image of those who conquer, those who actually, who actually repent of the complacency, of the facade, of the nominalism. They will experience the white garments representing the purity. And notice it's granted to them. It's gifted to them. It is, it is their marriage supper, notice here, with a lamb. Christ is the one who is slain for us. And so that's the first promise, this, is this promise of, 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 that we will be cloaked in purity. The second promise is that we will have our names in the book of life never blotted out. And so you see in verse, six, or verse 5 here continuing, I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will never blot his name out of the book of life. And again, notice the contrast. At the beginning of the book, it's, he said, you have the reputation, you have the name of being alive, but you are in fact dead. You've got you to strengthen what is in you that's about to die. You have that reputation of being alive. And here at the end of the book, or at the end of the message, he says, I will have your name in the book of life. This is where true life is to be found. You have the reputation of life. Here is where true life is to be found. And this, this idea of the book of life is imagery we find across the Bible where essentially it reflects this idea that God has a record. He has a record on, 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 on the basis of which he judges humanity. And so we get, we get a picture of two sets of books. At the end of the book of Revelation in chapter 20 at the white throne judgment, we will have a set of books where it says that, that God has a record of all the things we have done and humanity will be judged according to what they have done. But then there's another book. 
There's another book, the book of life. And everyone who is in that book will receive life. They will be enrolled among the saints who are saved. The other background that is, that is possible to this is the idea that in, in the cities in those days, in, in, this, in this area of the, of the world, they would have, the cities would have had a role of all of their citizens. They would have a list of all the citizens of their city. And if, if someone was a criminal and was to be executed, oftentimes what they would do is they would blot that person's name out as effectively saying, this person is no longer a citizen here. Go ahead and execute him. And Jesus is saying to those who conquer, you will have your name among the book of life, not among those who are judged by what they have done, but among those who are granted life graciously. Those who then are made a citizen. You are a citizen of the New Jerusalem. So in, Gen- or in Revelation 21, what is giving this picture of the New Jerusalem, it talks about those who have entrance into that city. Those who are on the citizen role of that city have their names in the book of life. It does raise a question, though, I imagine for some of us, this idea of blotting out the names. Does that mean that someone can lose their salvation? That someone's name could have been written in the book of life, but then at some point they, uh, they, their name is blotted out and now they are no longer saved? Let's try to answer that question. The first thing I would say is that the promise that he will not erase anyone's name does not imply that he will erase someone's name. The promise that I will not erase someone's name from the book of life does not imply that some do, in fact, have their names erased. The same Greek construction used here, the I will not blot out his name, is actually used in John 10, 28, for example, where Jesus says, I will give them eternal life and they will never perish. Which, of course, there we understand that doesn't mean that there are going to be some sheep who hear his voice that indeed perish. It's simply affirming the positive. All my sheep will hear my voice and they will never perish. When he says that they will never perish, we don't infer from that that there are some that do perish. Or in Hebrews 13.5 where he says, I will never leave you or forsake you, that doesn't mean that God will leave or forsake others. It's simply an emphatic way of God saying that he will never forsake his people. And so here, I don't think the idea when he says, I'm not going to blot your name out, is that in fact there are some who have their names blotted out. But he's saying, listen, your name is securely in the book of life. Yes, to have your name blotted out would be a terrifying prospect, but I will never do that to my own. That is something I will never do. I will never blot your name out of the book of life. It is secure. And in fact, as we look at this this theme of the book of life in the book of Revelation, we see that having one's name in the book of life effectively guarantees that they conquer. To have your name in the book of life guarantees that you will never be one of those people who falls away. You'll never be one of those people who goes after the beast. So look, for example, at Revelation 13.8. Revelation 13.8, it says that, well, let's start in verse 7. Now war rose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. I think I'm reading the wrong passage. Look at verse 
There is no verse 18. I don't have the right reference. Let me skip that one and go to chapter 17, verse 18, or verse 8. It's in 13 somewhere. Maybe I'll find it for the podcast. 17.8. Okay. The beast, the beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the dwellers on earth whose name have been written, who have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is, and is to come. Do you notice that? The ones who go after the beast here are the ones whose names were not written in the book of life. To have your name written in the book of life, in other words, guarantees that you will not be one who goes after the beast. You will, in fact, conquer it. Oh, I was reading in chapter 12. Yeah, I did have the reference correctly. Let's go back to 13.8. Sorry, I just was up in chapter 12. 13.8, where he says this, And all who dwell on earth will worship, in, worship it, and everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of of life of the lamb who is slain. So you notice there again, the ones who go after the first beast are those who don't have their names written in the book of life. And you notice too, their names are written in the book of life before the foundation of the world. These are people that God has planned beforehand to save. These are people he's not going to lose. And he says here to those who conquer, whose names are in fact in the book of life, they will never be blotted out. The third promise, then, is that Christ will acknowledge us before the Father. So you look at verse 5. He says, I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. So in in contrast to our own self-assessment, putting our own stock in our own name, as Sardis did, which in fact leads them to to God's assessment of them as your works are incomplete in my sight. Christ says to those who actually pursue the name that ultimately matters of God's assessment of them, he will claim their name before the Father and before his angels. That is a powerful statement. You think about Matthew 25 where at the, at the, the great judgment at the end, the judgment of the sheep and the goats, or to the goat to Jesus, when they come to Jesus, they say, did we not do all these things in your name? And what does Jesus say to them? He says, depart from me. I never knew you. That is a terrifying prospect. That there will be many people who say, Lord, Lord. They claim him. Supposedly. But he says, I never knew you. But Jesus says to the one who conquers here, I'm going to claim your name before God. I'm going to acknowledge your name before the courts as, as the angels watch in. You think about that last day when we stand at the, at the final judgment of God and our Savior who has died for us says, that person is mine. Will is mine. Holly is mine. Bob is mine. Andrew is mine. He names your name and he says, that person is mine. What a powerful promise we have. And all of these things are rooted in the gospel. That the white robes, 
Although on the, on the one hand, we can speak of the white robes as the righteous deeds of the saints, as he says. In chapter 7, ultimately, these, these white robes we have are because of Christ. Look at chapter 7 here in verse 13. He says, to the, to Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. The whiteness of the robes that, we, that await us, for those who in fact conquer, is grounded ultimately in, in the fact that Christ himself died for us and cleansed us by his blood. Now normally when you, when you wash something in blood, it's not going to be white, right? It's going to be stained with blood. But what's the imagery here? The blood is in fact something that cleanses. And in chapter 7 we get the picture of the believers who have died and they've come out of this world, they've come out of the tribulation, and they have white garments. Why? Because the lamb has died for them. That is a promise that is held out to us. Or as we saw in Revelation 13, the passage I couldn't find at first, the book of life passage, right? What does he say? That their names are written before the foundation of the world, the book of the Lamb who was slain. The whole reason I can even have my name written in God's book is not because I deserve it. It's not because of anything I've done. If it was because of things I've done, I'd I'd be judged by the other book, the book according to my works. But I can be written in the book of the Lamb who is slain, the book of life, because of what he has done. And when Jesus acknowledges us before the Father, it's certainly not by anything that I've done. It's not by anything that you've done. When we try to live by our own assessment, what do we see? We see we have a name of life, but we're actually dead. But when we actually follow Christ, what do we get? Christ acknowledges us because, as John says elsewhere in 1 John, he is our righteous advocate. He is the one who stands before God for us and says, that person is mine. And so as we come to the end of this passage then, we have, we've asked that question, what is the name that actually matters? I hope it's clear to you, the name that actually matters is not the one that we build up with our own sense of self-assessment, but the name that actually matters is, is, is God's assessment. God's assessment of our name is what matters. And so Christ's call to us, as he, as he gives these messages to all the churches, let him who has an ear heed what the Spirit says to the churches, plural. His message also to us, then, is to wake up and prize the name that actually matters. And these messages to the churches are stark, are they not? It's one of the, the reflections I've been having as we've been going through these you know, these seven messages, is that these messages that Christ gives to the church are often really severe. They're really intense. Do we assume that if Christ was to give us a message that we would have evade critique? I think it can be easy, in other words, it can be really easy to read these messages and just kind of assume like, oh, those churches were really bad. They had a lot of problems. And just think that, like, we wouldn't, that what he's describing here in these messages wouldn't land on us. That we wouldn't become a target of, of such criticism. It's always easy to deflect and, buy, and kind of see how, oh yeah, that's really bad, that's bad stuff. Those, that's other people's problems. But I think a question that I've been thinking as we go through this is, what might Christ say to us? What, if Christ was to write a message to the church in South Milwaukee Crossway Community Church... What would Christ write us? 
What he says here is that we need to be wakeful. We need to be alert in light of the fact that Christ is in fact coming. We need to have a, 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 a life that is not one of slumbering, complacency, satisfied with nominalism and subtle compromises, garment stained, but ultimately have our concern with God's assessment of us. I think of Paul's language in 1 Corinthians 4 where he says, I, 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 I kind of don't care if you judge me. I don't even judge myself because what ultimately matters is God's judgment of me. That we ultimately have a concern that our, that our name is one that from God's assessment, what he says, not our own reputation, not our own standards, but ultimately God's standards. And so church, may we live not content with our own assessment of ourselves, but as those who make it our prize to be considered Christ's and to live as his people. And as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper as well, I want to just bring back to our memory that, that one of the images that we saw, which is that of Christ claiming our name. It's just so powerful to think of our Savior as someone who says, that person is mine. I bought that person. They cannot be condemned for sins that I have paid for. And in the Lord's Supper, that's exactly what Christ is telling us. He is saying that I claim you as my own. When Jesus says that this is my body for you, this is my blood for you, to the one who actually trusts in Christ, to the genuine believer, he is saying that this, this symbolism here, is, it comes to you as a pictured promise saying that I claim you as my own, my body and my blood, these, these, these pictures of my death are for you. The judgment of God that awaits where he will claim us as our own, we already have the promise of its sentence even now in the Lord's Supper.